Today's gospel reading from John is short but familiar. Many of us have heard this story of a woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair. It is a story that appears in all four gospel accounts, but it varies a little bit each time. So I want to set it up with a bit of context for John's gospel today. As both Pastor Chad and I have said many times before this, details matter, but they particularly matter in a story that is as familiar as this one. So the setting in John's gospel telling of this story is that it is six days before the Passover. They are in Bethany, which is the home of Lazarus. In the chronology of John's gospel, this is this scene takes place Right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, which happened in chapter 11, this is chapter 12. But before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we celebrate next Sunday on Palm Sunday. In John's gospel, that entry into Jerusalem happens the following day after this scene. So Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is almost there, but before he enters that city, he stops to share a meal with his friends. John makes note that Lazarus is there sitting at the table eating with Jesus. Mary, Lazarus's sister, the one who told Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She, at some point during the meal, gets up, takes a pound of costly perfume and pours it over Jesus's feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, some details to note. A pound of perfume is a lot of perfume. Like Most bottles you buy are like an ounce, maybe two, like the big bottle is three, right? A pound is 16 ounces. This is 16 ounces of expensive perfume, 300 denarii, which is about how much they say they could sell it for. That's about a year's worth of wages for a minimum wage job. So if you want to translate it to today's wage amounts, it's equivalent to a little less than $20,000. So Mary dumps $20,000 worth of perfume onto Jesus's feet. And John says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which makes sense because 16 ounces of spilled perfume would surely fill any space. Rudyard Kipling once said, smells are surer than sounds or sights to make your heartstrings crack. How many of you have a smell that you think about and it takes you to a, a different place? You have memories associated with smells. Yeah, lots of you, right? I have kind of a an extra sensitive nose. I tend to smell things like 30 seconds before anybody else in my family does. Uh, and when I was pregnant, I was so sure that the refrigerator had a smell, like something in there was bad. And my husband and my brother would open up the fridge and they'd be like, it doesn't smell like anything to tell you. And I literally had to hold my breath and open the door and get whatever I needed and then shut it again. It was about two. Layla was about two before I ever started like breathing when I opened the fridge. I just got back from Florida and there is a salty, sandy, delicious smell that you don't, you literally just don't get anywhere else but off a breeze coming off of the ocean, right? There's a specific smell. 
We all have this smell, right, that can take us somewhere else. I can close my eyes and smell the perfume that my mom wore when I was growing up, even though she hasn't worn it in years. In fact, it's discontinued. You can't even buy it anymore. The smell of it, if I close my eyes and think about it, I can picture myself in her bedroom digging through her jewelry box, pretending like I was a grown-up while she got ready to go to work or out with my dad. As a sensitive smeller, many perfumes give me headaches, so I tend to not wear them or like them that much. So truly, the thought of a whole house filled with the sweet smell of perfume makes my head hurt just to imagine it. Mary pours out this pound of perfume, and it fills the house, and she uses it to anoint Jesus' feet. I'd like to take a moment and picture the scene if you've ever had your feet washed before or even had someone rub your feet. It's, it's not simple or easy, right? It's kind of vulnerable. It's kind of intimate. That's not something you do quickly. Mary is a close friend of Jesus, but she cannot contain her devotion or her love in this moment any longer, and she expresses it in this way. And what I picture to be kind of a quiet, maybe uncomfortable moment for the room is interrupted by Judas, who, John here being spoiler alert, uh, painted him as the one who's about to betray Jesus, so he gives away what's coming up, as if we didn't know. And then, if possible, he paints Judas as even more of a villain by saying he steals from the common purse. So not only is he going to betray Jesus, but he's a thief. Judas questions Mary's use of this expensive perfume, saying, you know, it could have been used for something more philanthropic. And though we definitely don't want to be people who agree with Judas, definitely not, we kind of do, right? Because he, again, we don't want to, but he makes a valid point. $20,000 would go a long way into helping the poor. I mean, is it a really good use of resources to lavish this kind of devotion on Jesus? Judas speaks up on behalf of the poor. But then John, of course, makes a little side note that Judas is a thief. So then we know he's not making the request out of the goodness of his heart. So why then does he interrupt this moment? Is he uncomfortable with the level of devotion Mary is showing? Does he see a loss of 300 denarii from which he can steal? Maybe a little of both? I wondered in this week how Mary felt at this moment. When Judas speaks up and introduces maybe a moment of doubt in her mind, maybe having her wonder as she's kneeling at the feet of Jesus, did I do the right thing? Maybe it was wrong to behave in this way. I think Judas, as our perfect villain today, effectively brings shame into this beautiful moment. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Mary had no idea what was coming. Uh, burial preparation likely not her motivation for what she did. 
Anointing in this way, the way Mary did it, was done in only a few instances in Jewish culture. One is for death. But since Mary didn't know or didn't quite buy into the rumor that Jesus was going to die, the other reason to do this kind of anointing is to recognize a king. It's for kingly devotion. This is a huge statement Mary makes here. And Jesus says, she is preparing me for burial. He kind of changes the mood of the room, I'd say, from kingly worship to talk about his death. He surely knows what is to come as he enters the city where he will be killed, even if those gathered around him do not quite get it yet. I like to imagine that not even a week later, as he shares a meal with his disciples and he bends over to wash their feet, I like to think you can still smell that hint of perfume on his. And that detail about Lazarus sitting at the table is important in this moment because Jesus says, Mary is anointing me for my death and for my burial and eating with them as Lazarus, this guy he's just raised from the dead. Lazarus is the one who is proof sitting there that death does not have the final word in this kingdom of God. In the face of the death that is approaching, which Jesus, I mean, just puts right out there, he also adds to it this phrase, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. It can seem kind of out of place here, almost like a random side note when we hear it. This is a response, yes, to Judas's false plea on behalf of the poor, but also it is a lovely play on words. And this is kind of where I want to hang out for a minute this morning. Because all the extravagant love and the costly perfume and the call to care for the poor by the thief in the room bring us to this moment. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So how many of you have heard this phrase before? Or maybe the shortened version, the poor will always be with you. Anybody heard that? Yeah, a a fair number of you, right? How many of you think that that phrase kind of makes you feel a little icky? Anybody else besides me? A few of you being brave. There you go. I think there are a few ways this verse uh, can be taken. Maybe it can feel sort of futile, right? Like fighting poverty is an impossible task that can never be ended because they're always going to be there, right? That's kind of how some people hear it. Or it can be used as justification for not doing anything, right? Like what's the point? Why do anything if they're always going to be there? Or it can be used as criticism for groups who are fighting systems of injustice. What's the point? Or there's my least favorite, but sometimes use the needy Jesus option where he says, don't worry about the poor, take care of me. You always have time for the poor people, but you won't always have me here. None of these understandings of this verse seem to hit me just Right, they all kind of feel a little icky, maybe not quite right. So I've got another one to consider this morning. 
so bear with me as I word nerd for a second. The Greek word here is exite. It is the same word in two forms of grammar. So exite can be present indicative or present imperative. If you have forgotten your grammar, no worries, I got you. So present indicative means it indicates how something is. Like it's just an indication of the way things are in the world. So uh, this could mean that exite might say the poor will always be with you. It's just the way it is. Or exite could also be the present imperative, which is more of a command. So it could be have the poor with you. Maybe a less clunky way to say it, have the poor with you is kind of odd, might be to say keep, keep the poor with you. Keep the poor with you. I can't always be here to do it. You hear how that changes the whole verse? Keep the poor with you. You won't always have me. Keep the poor with you. They won't always have me. Central to Jesus' teaching and mission throughout John, throughout the Gospels, has been to care for the poor, the outsider, the outcast. We've seen this over and over and over again. Jesus is getting ready for what is to come, and he's telling those around him, I'm not going to be around too much longer. I'm not going to be here to do this. So if he's not going to be there to care for the poor, who will? Certainly not Judas. Right? The one who in the moment seems to be standing up for those in need. Jesus makes this clarification here. And it's very clever, which I'll get to in a second. He doesn't want this act of devotion by Mary to be seen as maybe permission to ignore the poor. I mean, Judas has kind of set in front of us this false choice, right? You either worship Jesus or you take care of the poor. There's no both. And we've kind of done the same thing to this verse, truly. We, we can't do both, right? The poor are always going to be with us. We might as well worship Jesus. This phrase, the poor, keep the poor with you and not me, is a zugma. Anyone know what a zugma is? Besides my husband, who had to listen to this already. <clears throat> uh, zugmas are a clever rhetorical device that tie two things together. So, for example, I lost my keys and my temper. She broke his car and his heart. The storm sank our boat and our dreams. We fished for trout and for compliments. I approached with caution and flowers. And my personal favorite, our teeth and ambitions are bared. It's from The Lion King. Scar sings it, of course. This phrase that has been so used to justify not taking care of the poor, because, you know, what's the point, is actually a zugma. It is a rhetorical device that John uses. Jesus connects himself to the poor in a way that is so clever. Have the poor, not me. Don't Make this the false choice of taking care of the poor or worshiping Jesus. Mary did this one thing, but that's not the point. What she did was singular. She won't always have me. The poor won't always have me, so keep the poor with you. 
Jesus is showing that this lavish, extravagant love that is shown to him is the kind of love he has been showing already to a specific group of people that still will need it. In John's Gospel, this, this phrase, this odd sentence, this zugma, is one of the last things Jesus says before he enters Jerusalem on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. You can't ignore that he enters Jerusalem smelling like a pound of $20,000 perfume. This moment we hear about today with Mary, with Judas, foreshadows all that is to come in the next two weeks. Mary declares him a king, anoints him as a king, and unwittingly prepares him for burial. He enters Jerusalem as a king and yet dies there just a few days later. And Judas, our villain of the day, he reminds us how often we miss the point, how easy it is to say the right thing but act differently. He reminds us how a lot of times we too are uncomfortable with this extravagant, lavish love that God shows us, that he brings to us, that Jesus brings to us and inspires in others. How often we ignore the needs of the poor and the outcast when they are the ones for whom Jesus came for and who he was commanded who commanded us to, com- to love and show care for. He says, keep the poor with you. They won't always have me. Love each other as I have loved you. He will say as he washes the disciples' feet, just as Mary washed his. Lavish love everywhere in this story. We have before us in these next few weeks the opportunity to bring that same kind of lavish love to others, to those who truly need it most, to those we have decided that society or our culture or our country has labeled as other, as different, that we hide from in our gated communities and segregated neighborhoods to those seeking asylum and refuge. It is time to give lavishly. The kind of love that fills a room so the smell of it lingers. So there can be no doubt of the kind of love we are sharing. That smell that you have a memory attached to, I like to think the disciples never forgot ever the smell of that perfume and that moment of lavish love preparing Jesus for what was to come. John began his whole gospel, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, grace upon grace is why Jesus came. He said, God became flesh and dwelled among us so that through Jesus we would all receive grace upon grace. Grace. See, Jesus in the story today 
is the recipient of this kind of lavish, uncomfortable grace. But so are we. We are always on the receiving end of this kind of love from God. And then our call is to go and share it. And as we wonder what that means, what that looks like, how we do it, Jesus gives us the answer again, kind of clearly this morning. We start with the poor, because that's where he is. Amen. Because of your mercy, I stand here.